Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. Uh, my guest today is Anna-Claire Monlezo. Monlezu, and I'm going to ask her to correct that in just a second. But uh, Anna-Claire, welcome. You were one of the authors of the Human Dimensions section of the Society for Range Management's Ecosystem Services Report. Uh, and this built on some work that you've done with some others on how to characterize and define uh, nature's contributions to people, which is a, a term that I don't think we've ever used on the podcast before, but a term that came out of a uh, 2015 uh, intergovernmental group and report. Uh, so welcome. And uh, I'd like to have you say your name and, and what the, the history is of, of the name. I think it's really cool. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Tip. Um, my name is Anna-Claire Molazan in American, and it's Basque French. So it would be pronounced Molazan, and it means the glow uh, or light behind the mountain. Yeah, that's a great term. <laughs> it is a good term. And I like glow behind mountains. <laughs> um, well, what, what, is, what is your background? How did you get into doing sociology work in rangelands, which is a bit of a niche field. It is a niche field. So, and I didn't intend to be a part of it, um, but it, it, it all happened. So I have a background in um, comparative literature, humanities, and music. And what I did with that was I became a counselor. And I worked in the mental health field as an eco-therapist, an expressive arts therapist. Um, and then at some point in life, I took a hard turn and uh, decided to go back to school. And I, I, I did another round of grad school in the animal sciences and fi finished up in ecosystem science and sustainability. Um, there's a lot of whys behind all of that, but um, to put it shortly, I found myself um, and my passion for large animals and ranching, as well as the environmental sciences, um, and, and found myself bringing that social science counseling background into this field, uh, which is oftentimes, you know, full of conflict and controversy as well. Yeah, that's fascinating and and I think fitting. I really <laughs> like the phrase nature's contributions to people. I think I hadn't seen that term before until uh, I, I read the manuscript that you sent me. I like the phrase because I think it's a, a richer or a, a thicker term than what we would usually say as, you know, human dimensions of ecosystem services or something that's really sterile, but sort of descriptive. Um, <laughs> do you know anything more about how that, how that term came to be? Yes, I do. So, um, you know, the, the ecosystem services concept, uh, most people talk about it as if it was born in the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment in 2005, but it actually was around 
prior to that. Um, scholars like uh, Gretchen Daly and others in the natural capital space um, were using the term ecosystem services in the late 90s, I believe. And um, it was it what it did was it opened doors to the monetization of nature. And I don't believe this was wholly intentional. But what it did was it it clearly described um, the linkages between nature and the way humans benefit from nature. And so it laid out the groundwork for more market-oriented mechanisms, right? You know, if you can put a dollar sign on something, well, you know, money, money talks. So what happened mm-hmm. was it it's uh, there it, it um brought in more money and funding and into conservation that we hadn't really seen before. But it was also highly criticized. The ecosystem services concept um, has and still is highly criticized because of that, you know, commodification or commodification of nature. And so um, the nature's contribution to people um, came out in about 2015. So we're talking, you know, over a decade after ecosystem services was popularized. And, um, Sandra Diaz or Diaz and, and, uh, her team have those original publications on nature's contributions to people. And so what they, what they offered was an alternative concept built off of the ecosystem services concept. Um, but which, really um, permeates the role of culture um, in the ecosystem services, as well as the role of local knowledge or an indigenous knowledge in our understanding of the contributions that we gain um, from nature, but not all positive ones, right? So, So they recognize also those contributions of nature that are really not of service <laughs> to us, such as, um, you know, predation, for example, or disease transmission, for example, or, <laughs> you know, methane emissions, right, from um, the melting Arctic. So uh, it's a more holistic, I believe, uh, holistic concept. Unfortunately, um, and, and I would say a more culturally sensitive and, you know, sensitive concept and not as anthropomorphic as, you know, ecosystem services is like a one-way street. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas nature's contributions to people, um, when you read read those papers, you'll see that it's a little more of a, two, a two-way street. So um, unfortunately, nature's contributions to people is a term, it's kind of clunky, right? You can give it an acronym like, like we like to do, NCP, but mm-hmm. it just never really caught on or at least hasn't caught on yet. Um, but I actually really like the way that they um, categorize the various contributions. I, I like it better. It's more intuitive. It's more, uh, you can connect with them more easily than that original vocabulary and language of ecosystem services. Yeah, I think part of what's interesting is that it feels like uh, there could be the criticism that uh, that it's entirely... Uh, anthropocentric, mm-hmm. but but on the other hand, and I think probably a lot of qualitative researchers would would say this that you know even when we think we're being quantitative and objective about analyzing things, it's still 
coming from a human perspective, we're defining the questions, defining the metrics, defining the values. Uh, you know, so we we like to think that right. we're using the scientific method and just, um, you know, from sort of a third person perspective, trying to define what is. But but that perspective is still a human perspective, and so right. it feels <laughs> a bit like just being honest about the fact that when we speak, even when we speak of, you know, say a list of the old term of ecosystem goods, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know what. What most people, including me, don't like about that is that it sounds like just a collection of commodities or assets that that we're assigning monetary value to. Right. Uh, you know, but but even that is still that's still a human perspective and a human assignment of value. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, you mentioned that that ecosystem services. The concept is probably one of the most important trends in modern conservation science. And I gather mm-hmm. from what you've just said that uh, just because it's most important doesn't mean that it's the most beneficial trend. And there's <laughs> pros and cons of all kinds of things. But that a thing is significant doesn't always mean that it's entirely good, just like mm-hmm. nature's contributions to people. Uh, why is that an important trend? Right. Um, well, this is something that um, that I, I think about a lot and I, I like to talk and well, and I, I will continue just as a disclaimer, I will use the term ecosystem services more often than I use the term nat- um, nature's contribution to people, just because I think most people know about it. And for lack of, to, to and it's avoid, confu- it's half the syllables <laughs> and um, to avoid, you know, kind of miscommunication, I do still resort to the term ecosystem services. So I, I'm going to do that here as well. Um, but I, I talk about it as, as a description of the flow of values, value from nature to people. And when I say value, I, I really mean not just monetary value or material value, but also the sociocultural value of nature to people. Um, and this is something that I explored in the study that was a, a part of my, my PhD dissertation and what is um, under peer review currently. Um, and, and we really focused on the sociocultural valuation of nature because that monetary valuation is, uh, I believe, limiting, actually. Yeah, the, the effort <clears throat> or the... I think there's some benefits to the historical attempts to put dollar values on these things, mm-hmm. uh, because in the real world, that's some of the ways that we uh, that we conserve land is is mm-hmm. by trying to put a price on it. And as I've said quite a few times, I think we often don't uh, we don't mentally engage with what that value is until until the thing is gone, and then all of a sudden we we say that well, it was it was priceless. Uh, but we don't find a way to value that ahead of time. I think there's also most people would would at least feel like, even if they would say they'd have a hard time, you know, defending it scientifically, that that these things have intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. People sense that they intuit that, even though uh, even though uh, you know we're a little bit uncomfortable maybe trying to talk about it, but. You know, ultimately, all of the things that support biological life, which you were alluding to, depend on the function of 
ecosystems at a variety of spatial scales. And there's a whole lot of things that have to do with human well-being that depend on nature that are really difficult to quantify. Uh, and that gets at some of the intrinsic value, but but even that is still borrowed because we're saying it's valuable because it affects human well-being, <laughs> not that it's valuable <laughs> right. in and of itself. Uh, but you know that's uh, that's that's our perspective, and that's the world we live in. Uh, in the paper, you talk about yeah. Go ahead if you wanted to respond to that. Yeah, I well, you're you're um, tapping on something that is in the nature's contribution to people literature and lots of literature beyond that was inspired by all of this. And that, um, and I, I summarize it as um, three types of values. So you, we talked about you know instrumental value, which is monetary or you know provisional value, right? It, it's giving goods. It's providing some kind of physical goods, right? That would be instrumental value. The, you, you mentioned intrinsic value, and that is something that comes out in the ecosystem services literature. You know, that's, that's valuing nature for nature's sake, right? It's just, there's inherent importance mm-hmm. there. Um, then there's a third value that emerges in the literature and that we talk about in our paper, and that is relational value. Um, and that's, that's that social cultural, you know, connection that we feel or that we engage in with family, with friends, with, um, with groups of people, um, in the presence of nature or in special places, right. And nature or of, um, you know, special animals or special kinds of plants or food. Um, mm-hmm. and so the, those three values, I think, I can think of a, a fourth category that that those three categories don't capture, you know, instrumental, intrinsic, and relational. And so in the in the paper, what we learned is that um, all all kinds of rangeland stakeholders, um, no matter if the ecosystem services um, are, you know, material, non-material and regulatory, those are the nature's contributions categories, um, but that there's a, a pluralism in our values attached to all of those, right? There's So therefore, monetary, that, that monetary instrumental value is really not the only one we should be focusing on when we, when we consider our decisions and our, our directions for funding. Um, and our, our conservation or policy objectives. It's really, there's really a pluralism there that we have to consider. Yeah. You mentioned three more or three different categories. I'm curious how these three overlap. You mentioned instrumental, right. intrinsic and relational values. And then in the paper, you refer to material, non-material and regulating uh, nature's contributions. How do those right. three relate or can you define the second set of three? Yes. Okay. So to clarify, um, there, so there are two sets of, uh, categories here that we're talking about. So first there's the ecosystem services or the nature's contributions to people. Those are, you know, those, those goods and services that we benefit from. And then in the nature's contributions to people literature, they, instead of using the kind of more well-known ecosystem services um, categories, which are supporting regulatory or regulating and provisional. Nature's contributions to people use the three categories, material, non-material, and regulatory. And so to define those, 
material services or material contributions are, you know, food, fiber, um, timber that that's associated with that other classification system of provisional services. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, then, then the nature's contributions to people. Do you see why it's clunky to have to say that over and over again? Yes. <laughs> That's why it's kind of hard. It just, I think it won't stick, unfortunately. But, <laughs> but I really, NCP just doesn't work. <laughs> NCP, right? Um, something about it. But, um, you know, I think it's unfortunate because I really like these categories. So, um, so there's material, then non-material. Those are um, like our access to nature, right? The the benefit to mind and body and emotion, right? Our emotional well-being, our access to recreation. I mean, how many people use rangelands for recreation of different kinds? And so those are the non-material contributions. And then the regulatory or that category is kind of a combination of the former classification system that was, you know, regulating or supporting. And those are, you know, um, the, the, the contribution of biodiversity and wildlife habitat, nutrient cycling, um, air and water purification or filtration, um, that our grasslands provide, uh, water cycling, things like that. So those are three um, categories for nature's contributions to people are, are this, this other form of ecosystem services. The instrumental, relational, and intrinsic are values categories, right? So those, those are the value categories that we apply to material, non-material, and regulatory contributions or services. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I have a, a slide on this that makes it a lot more clear, but it's hard. It's hard to discuss it without a, a visual aid, right? Yeah, one of the reasons I think I like this is that I'm, as somebody who's, uh, I, I would say, a, a boundary spanner to use a, a sociology term. Yeah. You know, between different worlds, the people that that use and study and understand and manage and value rangelands, and the people mm -hmm. who who think that range is the thing you cook your scrambled eggs on, <laughs> you know, and trying to bridge that because people value what I think what, what we value, but don't have, uh, haven't identified that or don't realize they do, or don't see the distinction with, with other things. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, on, on the one hand, I think there's value in, um, being an advocate for all of agriculture but on the mm -hmm. other hand, I think the way that we do it in rangelands-based livestock production <laughs> is unique, uniquely sustainable, and and uniquely able to be supported by people that know nothing about agriculture whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, we're as I've said a, a hundred times, you you don't. I've got no nothing against corn farmers, but it's a good example. You don't <laughs> grow a cornfield without taking out everything that was there before the cornfield. Right. Uh, right. But but we can. We can we can provide some of these provisioning or material uh, ecosystem goods and services uh, on rangelands without, if we do it right, without compromising the non-material, the intrinsic, you know, the relational values of rangelands. And I think that's pretty unique. And I I guess one of one of the things that is a goal for me is to do a better job of communicating that, uh, you know, to the outside world, whatever that is. 
You know, I think right. sociologists would say there is no public. There are only many publics. Uh, but but all of those publics that don't know anything about <laughs> rangelands and uh, and all of these uh, supporting, regulating, and provisioning values, material, non-material, regulating, uh, you know, contributions of nature. Mm-hmm. I think there's a good story to tell there, and something that people can connect with, and identify with, and uh, and and value. And I think it's it's up to us uh, to communicate some of that. And I think right. this language, you know, a lot of times uh, systems like this that that identify those services, sort of like um, riparian proper functioning condition, and just as a mm-hmm. somewhat unrelated example, one of the benefits of that is that it provides a, a language to communicate across different types of land users and scientists and, and ologists uh, <laughs> and provides some, you know, some commonality uh, to, to even talk about how do we manage streams. And I think this is a similar but broader set of uh, concepts and and terms that allows us to speak to people that don't know anything about rangeland science, about the values of rangelands. Right. I totally agree with you. Um, yeah, it, it really provides, the, well, back to the ecosystem services concept as well as nature's contributions to people the two of them really give us this comprehensive or almost comprehensive language and, you know, kind of a new vocabulary and a structure, like an, an, an understandable structure around the ways that society or individuals um, benefit from nature and, and really have relationship with it. And that's one thing that's important to me, you know, when I talk to people is that this is about relationship. Um, and I don't think this was as easily or impactfully explicit previously, you know, I'm talking more than 20 years ago to such a, a, a wide um, range of people. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, one interesting thing is that uh, in the, <clears throat> I feel like a lot of current definitions of rangelands uh, attempt to remove any human use from the definition. And mm-hmm. so a, a technical definition coming out of, say, a, a textbook would often say that rangelands are a land type that's characterized by, you know, vegetation. The dominant vegetation is grasses, shrubs, and grass-like plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but anybody who ter- hears the term rangeland automatically thinks the very the very term itself implies that it is a place on which livestock range. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so you borrow a definition of rangelands uh, in the paper that, uh, that, that leaves some of that human dimension in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned by email that it actually came out of the SRM 1998 glossary, which really hasn't been, uh, I don't think there's been really any updates to that, but their definition of rangeland <laughs> in there is grazable grassland, forest land, shrubland, and pasture land of primarily indigenous vegetation that are managed as natural ecosystems and are grazed or have the potential to be grazed. Uh, I think that's a pretty good definition. And uh, yeah, any, any thoughts on that? In, in comparison or contrast to you know what tend to be more technical vegetation specific definitions of rangeland 
Yeah, I love this definition. When when I discovered it, I was like, that's the definition I want to use. And and uh and I like it because it's dynamic. You know, it it highlights that critical role of the large herbivore. Uh I happen to be passionate about large herbivores myself. So, you know, without them, there would be no rangelands, right? So um this definition adds that that dynamic, that dynamic into the definition. Um, and so it's funny because sometimes I use the word rangelands with people outside of, of this industry and, and I get a blank stare and I'll immediately follow up with, right. you know, you know, grazing lands. Right. So right. to me, you know, they're pretty synonymous. Um, and I think one, one, just took the academic track and the other took the applied track maybe, but, um, you know, rangelands, grazing lands, you can't say those words or define those without the, without incorporating the role of the large herbivore. And so when it comes to management, right, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's good. I think the, you know, the devil's advocate would, would say that, there are rangelands that are not grazed by domestic livestock, but you're saying Mm -hmm. pretty much any place where there's millions of acres of something like grassland, shrubland or savanna ecosystem is being grazed by something. Even if they're not really large wild herbivores or domestic herbivores, something is grazing that. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, someone once told me I I was listening, I had a speaker, um, in one of my classes that talked about what they call designer ecosystems. And this concept came from the idea that there's not a square inch of this earth that humans have not affected or touched in some way. So, you know, when I think of rangelands, you know, I think of, um, you know, some areas like the Kanza Prairie, or I think of, you know, parts of the the Rocky Mountain West. I think of the Serengeti, right? I think of Mongolia. I think of um, Yellowstone National Park. Um, and none of those places, you know, are places that management can be exempt, right? That humans are exempt from. Um, and, and again, I'm, that circles back to, to that motif that I just feel every day. And that's about relationship that, you know, humans, we are not, um, apart from nature. We are a part of right nature in the, Mm -hmm. in the animal kingdom. And so I can get really philosophical on that. Sometimes I won't do that (laughs) today, but, um, but it, it is that, that relationship that we have, that we're a part of. Yeah, yeah, this might be something worth talking about in a whole different interview sometime. But uh, <laughs> I've uh, Dr. Barry Perryman, who is currently the president of the mm-hmm. SRM, put me on to Charles Mann's book, fourteen ninety one, a number of years ago, uh, and I've done an interview with Charles Mann about that book on the podcast, and it's really interesting. But what I found most fascinating was the increasing amount of uh, you know various kinds of archaeological evidence geographic evidence, et cetera, that, that humans had way more influence on what we think of as wildlands uh, than we have mm-hmm. given them credit for. And that's such a complex, you know, is that, to what extent does that involve, um, you know, what's been called chronological snobbery, the idea that, uh-huh. you know, we're, th- we're the only sophisticated, advanced, 
healthy people that have ever been and therefore whatever came before us they must not have you know we have this view of humans from 300 years ago that they were just sort of there and opportunistically <laughs> feeding off the land but not doing anything active in terms of manipulating the landscape to support those provisioning services uh, there's yeah i think there's right about 11 different kinds of bias wrapped up in some of that but it, but it gets at questions that are very much relevant today, which is part of Dr. Perryman's point. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this idea that if you just remove humans from the equation, it's going to revert back to some ecological nirvana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Charles Mann's point and Barry's point is that uh, that has always been a moving target, whatever that is. And we're, we're evaluating that based on oftentimes very, very skewed ideas about what the role of humans was in the past and really incomplete information about what plant communities looked like in the past. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating work. I've actually listened to that podcast of yours, I think twice <laughs> because, and, and, um, and the book, I still haven't read it, but it's, um, it's on my wish list. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's a, such a fascinating concept. And, you know, when you talk to, rangeland managers, you know, range cons all, all over, you know, folks will say that some of the worst looking rangelands are the ones that have been sort of abandoned, right? Like unmanaged, um, wor- worse, I mean, you know, ecologically. So there, there really is an important role that we have. And, um, and it's just a matter of, of how we do that. Yeah, I think that begs another question. In most of the Western U.S. anyway, we are dealing with uh, what a lot of ecologists have called novel ecosystems, meaning mm-hmm. it's not it's not the same thing that was there 200 years ago. And in some cases, that's the result of human management, sometimes mismanagement, uh, but also the introduction of an exotic species that, that weren't there previously. And mm-hmm. Uh, it's a difficult thing to get to to accept the i would say the fact that uh, those species like cheatgrass are not mm-hmm. going to go away mm-hmm. and the idea that we can manage them away through a variety of you know whatever chemical biological mechanical controls and then mm-hmm. get back to what we think of as being uh, a more pure indigenous plant community probably is not going to happen and mm-hmm. so we need to make the shift and and accept that we're dealing with novel ecosystems and work from there, whatever that looks like. Uh, so I think one of my questions is, do you have any thoughts on on our, our ecosystem services or mm-hmm. nature's contributions to people changed or diminished or just different in novel ecosystems? And and how do people how do people perceive that? Yeah, so um, we can use cheatgrass as an example, maybe. Um, so it, it goes back to our values, right? Our value systems and what and how we value um, novel ecosystems, such as you know a cheatgrass monoculture, a cheatgrass shrub shrubland, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I've recently been really challenged 
on this one. Um, so I've, I've had the privilege of working over the last a uh, little over a year on a project that is onboarding um, hundreds of ranchers into a quote unquote regenerative ranching program. And so I get to go out into the field. Um, I get to teach ecological monitoring methods one-on-one with ranchers. We spend a whole day together, sometimes in a hay wagon, sometimes on four-wheelers, sometimes in in an old truck. And and we go around and we explore and we talk and we discover. And it's just a really beautiful process. And so um, this this idea of the, the cheatgrass shrubland has come up because um, I've learned, I'm, I'm pretty sure on this one, way, way more than they have learned from me, but <laughs> it usually goes a, that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I've been now to places that have given me this whole new insight into cheatgrass management and how best I can express this is that I've never before witnessed um, ranchers speak of cheatgrass so um, gratefully. <laughs> Can we even use grateful and cheatgrass in the same sentence? Um, you heard it here first. <laughs> you heard it here first. So, and what I, what I mean by this is that ranchers in certain parts of the West have learned to utilize um, utilize mostly monoculture cheatgrass or cheatgrass shrubland. Um, in a way that actually benefits their operation. And, and what, how I've seen this is that, you know, we all know that cheatgrass is pretty nutritious, right? In the spring when it's green, it's pretty palatable too. Um, I've worked with this on my own property. So, um, in the spring is also the time where if you've got some irrigated ground, yeah, you're really wanting to keep your livestock off of that, right? Cause you're trying to, to get some growth, maybe you even want to get a first cutting on it before you turn out or two cuttings on it before you turn out animals. And so in the spring um, is when they might put their um, late gestation or calving cows um, on cheatgrass shrubland. They've got lots of protection from the weather with the, with the sagebrush, for example. Um, and the cheatgrass, like I said, is pretty nutritious and that, that those publications are out there. So so they use this, you know, this cheatgrass shrubland in a strategic way in order to rest, 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 or you know, restore or allow for the recovery of other parts of the ranch. And so the problem is, is that when you when you don't change your season of use, right? When you're when you're using that same cheatgrass area over and over again, you're also really hurting your your cool season, your other cool season perennials that mm-hmm. really can't recover that kind of repetitive use year after year. Well, cheatgrass is great at recovering <laughs> from repetitive use. It doesn't really hardly hurt it at all. So, mm-hmm. so they have this, uh, this ability to stock their cattle and, um, and not have to feed, you know, hay at all or heavily in the spring while they're waiting for their other ground to get a head start. And I, I just never thought about that. I've never thought about how important that could be. So, you know, working with some folks uh, on this, it surprised me that to me, you know, this was a problem, right? When I see that from an ecological lens, I right. see it as a huge problem. But, and I feel like I kind of confused them when I started 
suggesting or, or circling conversation around, well, what could we do? <laughs> what could we do differently here, you know, to maybe increase your biodiversity? Um, you know, what about changing season of use? What about some bale grazing? What about some rest, you know, and recovery? What about some kind of like range seeding or, you know, all these other, all these mm-hmm. kinds of ideas, but it just, for them, it just wasn't worth it because it was working for them. You know, that, that, that's what I'm talking about, about these, these values that it, that we kind of cluster around, um, nature, right? So, so the cheatgrass monoculture, the cheatgrass, the cheatgrass sagebrush was, um, providing for them an instrumental value, right? Um, it was mainly, you know, I think, um, instrumental and then it was allowing them the freedom to, or the option to really maintain the health of their more valuable or to them, you know, as the more valuable, um, parts of the ranch. It was very fascinating. (laughs) So it is because the problems are real, particularly with regard to fire cycle. Fire. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the idea, um, that, these systems, you know, these novel systems are, are way more complex than, uh, first blush. And there are, you know, ranch feasibility questions in there. There are all kinds of, um, conservation questions. There's, there's, you know, questions around fire, questions around drought, questions around, you know, biodiversity and resilience. Um, however, um, it, it's, it's an, I guess, an adaptability that has, that has happened, an adaptability around novel ecosystems. So th- this got me on this train, uh, this mental train one day, um, when I was returning home from one of these places and I, and I started to consider, you know, well, cheatgrass came from somewhere, right? It, it came from somewhere on earth where it, it is native, right? Mm-hmm. It is part of the natural ecosystem, um, in that part of the world. And so I started looking back and I actually came upon Barry Perryman's <laughs> work, um, mm-hmm. you know, tracing and some, and the work of some others tracing it all the way back to, you know, around the Mediterranean, um, and Adriatic sea and the way that cheatgrass, um, was functional and it, it maybe provided, uh, a more comprehensive, cluster of values than we, um, do here. Uh, and it, it's actually pretty fascinating, um, history. I'm not, I'm not an expert mm-hmm. on it, so I'm not going to, I don't want to quote things from those papers, but it, it did get me on that track and to look at cheatgrass and novel ecosystems that we struggle with in some cases today and look at it from the lens of, okay, well, where, where was that species native? What was it doing? What was it providing in that part of the world? And is there some way we can use that perspective, um, towards, you know, more solution focused here? Right. Yeah. That might be worth a a panel discussion with Barry sometime (laughs) soon. I think that would be a productive, a productive, uh, conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, would, it is radically controversial, you know, is. both in terms of what do we do about it? How do we think about it? Does it have any value? Do we just need to fight it? Do we give in and just, um, you know, 
go with the flow or do we keep trying to graze in such a way that we sort of attempt to shift back away from cheatgrass? I think some of those things are only just being tried, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, some of the work on fall and winter grazing that that mm-hmm. has a fair bit of promise, probably not for eliminating cheatgrass, but, but backing it off such mm-hmm. that the native perennials can still be part of the plant community uh, and, and limit the dominance of cheatgrass. All those right. things seem like they're possibilities. Right. Yes. And, and I, I'm just want to make another disclaimer. I would, I would never advocate for, <laughs> for a monoculture cheatgrass anywhere or, you know, on a, on a shrubland. I don't think we should be striving for that. Um, yeah. But it's just, it's just, fascinating from a social, a social ecological lens, the way that we have adapted, um, or that, that people have adapted to it and have utilized it, um, in other, in other values and its other values. Yeah. For one thing that would have to be a world without socks and I'm not sure I'm willing to give up socks. (laughs) That's true too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Any thoughts on in some of the work that you're doing, trying to understand how people uh, see things like cheatgrass and and novel ecosystems? Uh, it seems like there's some differences there in how the different publics—I'll use that term again—value mm-hmm. uh, some of these different contributions from nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you uncovered anything along those lines, or are you just beginning to think about it? Um, the general public, do you mean? Yeah, well, the various, I guess, stakeholders might be a more mm-hmm. um, useful term. Ranchers versus biologists versus agency land managers versus scientists. There's quite a, uh, you know, a, a different, lots of different flavors of people out there that all of them have pretty different perspectives on mm-hmm. uh, on these various uh, contributions from nature and the extent to which things like cheatgrass and novel ecosystems uh, a- affect those values. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, in our in our study on the sociocultural valuation of ecosystem services, um, we we use this methodology called Q Q methodology and. I'll start by, by saying a little bit about this methodology. You know, our orthodox science, you know, is all about trying to detect to the smallest <laughs> degree the differences between things, right? Between treatments or between groups. And mm-hmm. Q methodology puts that kind of flips it on its head. And, and the whole method is meant to illuminate the common ground. It's meant to illuminate where those different treatments or where those different groups or where those different perspectives do um, overlap. So in, when, we're, when we're talking about rangelands management, I feel like, I, and I felt like when I first learned about it, this methodology was perfect. It's like, that's what we need. We, we need to figure out where our common ground is, you know, all of these different stakeholders with different, Hmm. um, different perceptions, different perspectives, different value systems, um, different forms of knowledge, you know, or sources of knowledge. And, and we, finding the common ground I think is, is critical. 
And so in our Q methodology, we did uncover um, with the stakeholder group that participated in the study, we did uncover that all all stakeholders, and, and we had participants from um, that were ranchers. We had participants that were community members that were like recreationers on public lands. And I should say that the study centered on public lands, rangeland management. Okay. So we, we interviewed folks who are, you know, are bird watchers or mountain bikers, you know, and, uh, and then we also had government lands agency personnel um, participate as well. So we had these kind of three large groups of stakeholders. And what we learned as we started to, to tease apart how people prioritize different ecosystem services or different categories of ecosystem services, we, we learned that while all three categories of ecosystem services are uh, valued in various ways by all, um, there, there were some distinct, um, divisions, I guess, in that typology. And so mm. while, while there was quite a bit of common ground, some, some um, kind of a typology emerged, basically. In the paper, you mentioned that one of the overarching research questions is uh, whether or not stakeholder groups have distinct value typologies. Uh, and I was wrestling a bit with you know, what exactly is a typology? I think I have sort of a, some intuition about what I think it might mean, but I'm curious how you would, uh, how you would describe what is a, a typology. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a, a typology is actually the, the classification um, or the, the larger kind of umbrella group of types. So under a typology of, let's just say, people, um, or we could use it for trees or we could use it for, you know, geological formation. So you would have the typology is this classification system. And then that breaks out into types. So what we revealed, um, in the study were three types under the typology of rangeland stakeholder perspectives on ecosystem services. Got it. Yeah. No, I think that's good. I, I really like this idea. I'm not a, uh, I'm truly not a quantitative scientist. <clears throat> and I think I had heard of Q methodology, but uh -huh. this was the first time I'd read much about it. But I really like this idea of identifying commonalities instead of differences as a, as a research approach. Because even identifying the common ground still leaves in the white space, the differences they're mm -hmm, still right. there, but mm -hmm. sort of like when you're driving a car, it moves toward what you look at. It seems like in, <laughs> in land management and human relations, we drift toward what we attend to. And if we focus all of our attention on the differences, uh, we spend all of our energy on the differences. Right. And our attention is limited. There's only so many hours and you've only got so much mental power to deploy you know, and our, our current digital economy is doing a really good job of harvesting your attention. But if we give our attention to the 90% overlap in values, which I think is often there, especially mm -hmm. in the world of rangelands, you know, if, if we get somebody who is a, a, a radical wildlife advocate and a, a traditional rancher who doesn't give a hoot about um, sage grouse, mm -hmm. 
they probably still actually have a very large amount of overlap in what they actually value. There's right. some differences in values and there's a, maybe a little bit more difference in in how they think we should get there in terms of managing land. But, but the things that they actually value uh, are going to be uh, a lot of overlap and, and way mm-hmm. more than I think we give attention to because the, the 10% difference, 10% is pretty big and there's mm-hmm. enough to, you know, create a fair bit of conflict there. But exactly. But this idea of identifying the commonalities and spending your research effort um, defining that instead of, you know, trying to hold all things constant and then figure out, you know, what tiny little bit uh, changes or is different. I like that idea. Yeah, me too. And I love how you describe it. it it's perfect. Um, and, you know, there there are very complex statistics involved in the Q methodology analysis. So that this is a definitely, you know, there's a quantitative background to this. Uh, mm-hmm. But the way that it's, you know, that it's executed as far as the way that you interface with the participants and then the way that you really get into the interpretation of the results is very qualitative. And, and that's where a lot of the richness is, I believe. You know, the numbers guide you, but then there's all this richness to work with that comes from the qualitative. It, it's actually considered a, a semi-quantitative method. Right. I can see that. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in this work with uh, ranchers and other stakeholders, you mentioned that one of the things that surprised you was how, uh, how fondly ranchers speak of cheatgrass and maybe the, the kinder <laughs> name would be, you know, downy brome, which sounds so nice. <laughs> were, were there any other surprises the in bear. that research? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. Um, well, you know, we, there were some definite take home messages that, that I can share. Um, one is that stakeholder perspectives, you know, across all these different stakeholders from community members to ranchers, producers, to government agency, personnel and conservation biologists, for example, um, that their per- all of their perspectives are rooted in pluralistic and overlapping value systems. So we can't just simplify it and say, oh, so-and-so's just trying to make more money or so-and-so, you know, it, it's just, that's not it. it it's that we, we're dealing with very pluralistic and, and overlapping value systems. Mm-hmm. Um, another, another one, another take-home message that came out was uh, that finding common ground among conflicting interests was something that everyone, um, everyone in the study thought was important. So, so there, there was no one that, you know, was a adverse to getting together and finding that common ground and, and moving on that. Um, another take home. Oh, do you want to say something? Yeah. Just a quick comment there. I think yeah. that's encouraging because, uh, you know, for those of us that are in this, we're usually well aware of natural resources litigation and mm-hmm. maybe have been involved in some collaborative processes where you had a group like Western Watersheds that stepped in. Uh, and, you know, John Marvel flat out told some folks that I'm involved with uh, here in central Washington that we don't do collaboration. They were invited to oh, participate goodness. in the very process that they were mm-hmm. planning to sue over. And they mm-hmm. said, no, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. But but that's 
like that's the tail on the bell curve, you know, way right, out. Right. That's an outlier. Mm-hmm. Right. And meanwhile, we ignore all these other, uh, you know, I'll say conservation minded organizations uh, that, that, that very much are in the middle and have way more commonality and are mm-hmm. interested in, uh, yeah, their, their, their list of values uh, is, is quite similar to the other stakeholders in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I should say that, you know, the, uh, the context for our study and, and Q methodology in general, it's, it really is context dependent, right? I mean, most research or all research is context dependent um, in in the field of ecology, just because of the variability and the heterogeneity across social and ecological realms, right? Um, when you're studying rangeland um, rangeland management, so um, our study was specifically based um, on the Colorado Northern Front Range. So we're working with a specific, you know, area specific. Um, you know, mm-hmm. a demographic, you know, of, of people, which in and of itself was very diverse. And I can tell you from talking with everybody one-on-one uh, who participated in the study, they were very, you know, diverse um, ways of thinking about this. But, but in the end, you know, we, we did conceptualize a study that this is, you know, a, a Northern Colorado front range context, right. Just to keep that in mind. Um, right. Yeah. So, so we were able to tease out, you know, what, what were the areas of, you know, more disagreement and what were the areas of more consensus? Um, Mm. and this probably won't surprise anybody, but the, the area of the most disagreement, uh, was around rules and, Mm. uh, and the enforcement of rules and oversight. And so I think that's, you know, in the example you just made, um, that's where, it, that's where it comes in. It's not, it's not that we don't know how to collaborate or we don't know how to talk to people different than us or, or if we had a facilitator, for example, that we couldn't find common ground or we couldn't identify shared values. It, but when it comes to the application, right, the application of those commonalities and differences, in terms of rules and regulations, right? And that power differential, I think that that's where it gets complex. Yeah. Um, and that has and, to do with what ought to be rather than, yeah. <laughs> you know, what is and defining what ought to be is the realm of mm-hmm. uh, philosophy. Science can inform that, but it doesn't mm-hmm. answer those questions. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Uh, you know, on the other hand, at the same time, you know, that that was the area of most disagreement the area of most agreement um, was the acknowledgement that we will deal with conflict. And it's like, okay, great. (laughs) We know, you know, that we will disagree. So there's this acknowledgement that conflict was inherent. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and right after that, the next um, piece of, of highest agreement or consensus was that collaborative management and goal setting are important for solutions, right? So mm. collaboration and goal setting, um, which is not easy to do, right? In a collaborative setting, <laughs> um, not easy to set goals that everybody can agree on. So, so what we learned, I think, you know, as a whole, um, is that when all stakeholders, right? Cause we're, we were talking about 
grazing, right? The grazing of cattle on public lands and, and well, collaborative management of public lands via private ranchers and, and public agencies. So we, we understood, and I think the biggest take home message was that there are many synergies between, you know, agriculture, agriculturally focused you know, perspectives and conservation focused perspectives. Um, but when all stakeholders understand that cattle may play an ecological role, you know, and if we work together to harness that ecological role, um, then it's not just an economic, um, value that, that we're putting into on the table. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so when stakeholders of all types understood that cattle can play an ecological role, that the synergy or, or the, the consensus was stronger. Um, there, there's yeah. more and it's sort of crossing mm -hmm. over from, you know, purely instrumental values, which is what ranchers are typically accused of holding. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to say it, but values. you said, you said. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm one of those, you know, I, I fall into that category. I'm a rancher myself. Um, my husband and I run a small operation, but I, I'm also, you know, I come at it from the science, um, side as well. So, yeah. So yeah, you're right that huh. usually ranches are criticized mainly for those instrumental prioritizing those instrumental values. Um, yep. Go ahead. I'll let you finish your thought. If, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, just that uh, it feels like there's a, uh, that is crossing over or, or helping people recognize that, that, that on, on, <laughs> using, you know, dualistic terminology on both sides of, <laughs> of that aisle, uh -huh. there are instrumental values and intrinsic values and relational values, you know, where mm -hmm. each of the different groups, and you know, in this case, we can use wildlife advocates and ranchers as the mm -hmm. two sides of the, of the proverbial aisle. <laughs> they each have ideas about the other that are mm -hmm. not entirely accurate. And right. And this is crossing over between those intrinsic and instrumental values and people's perceptions about those various kinds of values. Mm -hmm. Yes, I totally agree. Well, I think we've about uh, burned up the amount of time we usually use for these <laughs> interviews, but I wanted to swing back to uh, sort of an, an overarching reflection on uh, the shift in terminology and, and even how we in, in what is commonly called the scientific community think about these things. You know, mm -hmm. there's been this shift from ecosystem goods to ecosystem services to nature's contributions to people. And, you know, the, the older term uh, ecosystem goods sounds a lot like uh, you know, the term natural resources. And mm -hmm. again, as we've said before, this, this sounds to me too much like a collection of assets that we're arbitrarily assigning monetary value to. Mm -hmm. uh, but but in general, the term resources at all uh, sort of rubs me the wrong way. Maybe it's a, a pet peeve of mine, but we use the term for everything. We use it for, you know, human resources, which feels like a really bad term. It's, you know, it's treating people like they're um, just a resource to be used. I know that's usually not how it gets applied, but, right, you know, but apply that across the board, you know, resources sounds like, I, I think, I think part of what I see in that is a bit of uh, 
post-enlightenment thinking that treats everything on the planet, including people, mm-hmm. as sort of standing reserve that that I have the right to put my imprint on or to use for my purposes, mm-hmm. which which removes any kind of intrinsic value. It says that the only value that thing has, that resource has, is whatever I apply to it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a trend, you know, maybe toward more of a uh, – it doesn't sound very scientific, but, you know, almost a, a, a re-enchantment of – of the things that are out there of recognizing that they probably do have some kind of intrinsic value aside from me putting dollar figures on it. And, and that that is a, a bit of a shift. And I think we see even a shift away from the term natural resources toward, you know, more of a descriptive uh, categories and types of things and not just a generic blob of of stuff that we call natural resources Mm -hmm. so i think that's a useful shift uh and i thought i had a question there somewhere but (laughs) but now i'm not sure where the question mark is do you have any reflections on that (laughs) i do and it's it's so funny because i've thought about this so much um i i 100 agree with you and i i try not to get caught up in semantics or you know being evangelical about terminology, but I just can't help that. I think it's my, my humanities background or something coming out, but you know, okay. So last year, last year, Rangelands published a short paper that I wrote called why we should consider cattle partners. And in this paper, I discuss the same thing you're talking about tip, except the way that we've come to always refer to cattle as tools. And that just always mm-hmm. gets me. I'm like, we should not be calling any animal a tool. Grazing is a tool. Sure, I can stand by mm-hmm. that. Um, but the animal itself is not a tool. Um, and, and not anymore. Uh, or we, we shouldn't refer to them as that. And so I, I offer an alternative <laughs> uh, title to cattle in this sense, the way we, that we sometimes partner with them and and to call them partners. So anyway, that's a little bit of an aside, but that same kind of critical thinking about our language has really come up for me in the term natural resources as well. Um, You want to write a paper about it? (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's uh, it's like saying, do you want to, yeah. Do you want to join my band? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I know I play bass. (laughs) I think about this because, okay. So the word, Unfortunately, natural resources in, is in the title of like one of the largest departments of the USDA. So I don't think it's going to go away <laughs> anytime soon, but let's, let's question it. Right. So yeah. the word resource, the word resource means in Latin, right. In old French, it means to rise again or to recover. Okay. So I think at one point we never imagined we would come to a point of non-recovery, Right. That, that our, that nature would not recover or rise again from our use and our consumption of it. And I think today we are now understanding the limits of that, that perspective, right? That mentality that's, that is, has permeated even to our own language. Okay. So mm-hmm. I think about this a lot and I think about Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, where she proposes that we call nature kin, or she, she, she refers to nature as kin, right? And 
And I resonated with this. And so when I was, um, when I was writing my dissertation, I got, I got on a little bitty soapbox in my first chapter, which was like a theoretical chapter. And I Mm -hmm. thought, well, I'm going to come up with an alternative term for natural resources. Have you ever tried to do that? No, but I have applied a fair bit of thinking on a different term that I'll come back to when you're done talking oh, great. about that. Oh, I can't wait to hear. It. Okay. So, <laughs> so I came up with this term um, that, okay, this is, I'm putting myself way out on a vulnerable limb, um, but I came up with the term fellow natures, fellow natures. Mm-hmm. So if you replace that with every time we say natural resources, it's different. It feels different. It, it has a different connotation. So right. in this draft of my chapter, I, I threw out that proposal uh, and I said in my chapter, the rest of the dissertation, I'm going to refer to natural resources as fellow natures. Mm-hmm. And one of my committee members reviewed that chapter and commented, you know, in the Microsoft Word doc and was like, uh, this is confusing. I don't get it. And your dissertation is not the right place for this. <laughs> so, so I dropped it. Um, I dropped it, but I, you know, I still, I don't know. I still have this urge to write about it in some way, but I, I agree yeah. that, that this idea of natural resources, um, is problematic, um, in kind of our sub, in a subconscious way, you know, the, what right. exactly what you're talking about as well. So if I was, if someone, maybe you should have a contest or something, we, we should, put it out to the community and yeah. see who can come up with an alternative. What, Some what is yours? Terms. Yeah. Well, you, one of the things that has always stuck in my craw is the term producer for a uh, rancher uh-huh. because it feels so, so instrumental. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think doesn't get at a lot of, yeah, the, I feel like there's a lot of problems with it. Maybe it would be worth writing about, but one of them is that it, it seems to divide the world into producers and consumers. It's another us versus them. Mm-hmm. And the people who are the producers are rightly proud that they are food producers. Mm-hmm. But but I'm not so sure that it's fair to be to have a derogatory attitude toward the consumers. Uh, uh, and and I don't think it it accurately describes, you know, what a person who is involved in managing land, even if even if they're a lowly dirt farmer at the bottom of the <laughs> producer food chain <laughs> as opposed to a rancher, uh, uh-huh. you know, who I have, I think, I, I, I think it's important to use a different term than producer for the person who's managing land and, uh-huh. and generating food and fiber from naturally occurring plant communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a little bit similar to natural resources or ecosystem goods it um, it inaccurately and unfairly you know, narrows the thing to a to a identity that doesn't have enough breadth to it. Right. So, what about you know the like steward? That's one that's come up. Um, I don't think it's replaced or it's trying to replace producer, but mm-hmm. you know we talk about land stewards or. Um, Natural yeah, resource. No, I, we say natural resource stewards too now. So I think that's a good one. I, I, this is kind of an aside. I was recently uh-huh. in Australia for the Australian Rangeland Society, just got back last week oh. and interviewed a couple that is the manager for a, you know, a big cattle station there. And over the course of the, of the week of the conference, uh, which included a fair bit of participation from Aboriginal people, 
you know, the term custodian and steward uh, came up pretty often. And I, I think those are good terms. It, it acknowledges uh-huh. that you're sort of a, a temporary caretaker. Caretaker, right. Yes. For something that's going to last longer than you do. Mm-hmm. And you have a responsibility to manage that in such a way that it, that it, you know, that that places contributions to people continues mm-hmm. after you're no longer the one being the custodian for it. And I think all those words are, are pretty good and, and even more descriptive. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Interesting. And that you, you made me think of how, you know, to look at other languages and, and what do they, what do they call it? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and can we learn anything from the root where the roots of their words, um, how to refer to those people that have that role, you know, on this planet, basically. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the Aborigines use the term, use the term uh, Mabuburu to refer to healthy land. And, and the term encompasses everything, including the people that are on that land in recognition mm. of the fact that we're dependent on, you know, we will cease to exist if nature doesn't contribute to people anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's a, yeah, it's a nice all-encompassing term, more holistic like you've alluded to already. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And it's the people embedded, you know, people as part of, not apart from. Separate from, you know, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, we could probably keep talking for hours on these topics, but <laughs> uh, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go and thank you for your time and for your work on this. And I, somehow I missed that article why we should consider cattle partners. So I'm going to go find that. And assuming it's open source, we'll make a link to it. Yeah. So uh, Anna Claire, thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to future conversations about these things. Thank you, Tip. I really enjoyed talking with you. This was wonderful. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.